In this episode, Malcolm Finn, Director of Finance Operations and Control at Johnson Matthey, shares his insights on the critical role of humility in any transformation, the importance of building psychological safety and learning cultures within your team, and why the future for CFOs is more connected than ever before. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class finance leaders to help you grow your company and yourself and face the challenges required of today's CFOs. Welcome, Malcolm, and thank you for joining us on the CFO Podcast. Hi, Ross. Thanks for inviting me. to like to be part of the CFO Playbook. I've actually listened to the podcasts and enjoyed them over the last few months, so it's good to be part of it. Well, that's great to hear. And it's great to then have one of our listeners on as a guest because there's there's like a huge amount that you've done and, and been involved in that I'm sure other listeners would love to hear about. And one of the topics I, I wanted to start with, and as many of our recent episodes, it's, it's hard to get away, of course, from the, the effect of the pandemic, especially in a leadership role and especially in finance. And what's noticeable is for you is that you actually changed roles just recently in the midst of the pandemic joining Johnson Matthey last year. And one of the parts that came out in that move is that you that you joined them because you believe that, you know, Johnson Matthey is a company with a, with a compelling purpose. Can you speak a little bit more about that compelling purpose and actually why that led you to, to change roles in the midst of the pandemic last year? So I moved from Vodafone mid-pandemic to join Johnson Matthey. I might first to Johnson Matthey as JM, so it's, it's probably a bit easier as we talk through it. I'm the Director of Financial Operations Control at Johnson Matthey, and a large part of my role is leading on the finance strategy and finance transformation. So I think you're right, the pandemic has been a global experience, and it's impossible to go through such an experience without being changed. So of course, you know, we're all changing all the time, we're growing older and older, whether we want to or not. I think the pandemic has really confronted us with our fundamental helplessness and our dependency on others. And also I think it's made us, certainly me, question our contribution in life, you know, our purpose and our meaning. So when I think of purpose, it's it's the why of what we do. And I think we often lose that under the pressures of the what and the outputs and the targets and also the how, so the methods of how to do things. So JM's purpose is a cleaner, healthier world. And that is very compelling to anyone, I think. Everyone can connect to that. And as humans, we need to connect to something bigger than ourselves, really, to give us meaning. So JM's also a rapidly evolving organisation. It's, it's actually pivoting business models at the moment with the energy transition. So moving to electrification and moving away from the internal combustion engine. So our new businesses are in battery materials, where we've got patented cathode materials for batteries and also hydrogen fuel cells. So it's a really exciting time to join. And I'm also aware that probably Johnson Matthey, JM, isn't a household name, but the company's products and its components and even its IP sit at the heart of major industrial manufacturing and energy production projects all over the world. It is in the FTSE 100. So in the UK, it's listed in the FTSE 100. And it's incredibly well known in, in other supplies chains. So a lot of automotive companies use our technology and our products to produce catalytic, catalytic converters for reducing emissions. And even in terms of the hydrogen, hydrogen fuel cells, they go back 200 years, actually. So JM provided the original platinum catalyst used by Sir William Grove when he developed the first fuel cell 
to produce electrical energy by combining hydrogen and oxygen. So, you know, it's been in, in development for more than 100 years, the hydrogen fuel. So I don't think people know that. And it's also been used to power space flights, Apollo space missions use hydrogen fuel cells. And now it's becoming in, in its own, actually. And that leads on to just thinking about social responsibility. You know, we and our investors are really focused on ESG and sustainability just now. And I think when most companies talk about this, they're very often, all they're really talking about is how they plan to reduce the harms coming out of their operations. So the emissions or ethical supply chains. And obviously JM itself is committed to net zero and it will get there by 2040. And it's got a lot of influence in decarbonizing the UK economy. But, you know, hydrogen does have a place in the post-carbon economy. If you think about hydrogen chemically, it's H2, so it doesn't contain any carbon. And if you burn it in the presence of air, you're just going to produce water. So it's very, very clean chemistry. So it's very well placed, Johnson Matthew, to accelerate this cleaner, healthier world. And I get a sense of belonging and a meaningful, you know, for working for a company with a meaningful and purposeful mission and that's connected to larger social values. It's incredible when you talk about some of the those topics in, in light of JM, but those are some of the topics that are the most the, the most existential for us as a species on, on Earth, because you're talking about moving away from, from carbon towards renewable energy sources. And then you're you're talking about as well that the sense of purpose that, that attaches onto that. What's clear as well in your description is that before, and I found this fascinating uh, when, when looking at your background, but before you were a finance leader, you were a scientist. And actually now you're working for one of Britain's leading science companies and also a global player in science. Did that play a factor in choosing GM as, as somewhere to join next? It might have done, actually, without thinking about it. And I always <laughs> find myself connecting things. I, you know, I tie myself in knots connecting things. I, I think it's a human nature, isn't it, to make sense of things and connect things. But actually, yeah, it is a nice synergy that I, I have that technical knowledge. And, you know, it's a very complicated business to understand. You know, there's a lot going on, lots of patents, lots of patented technology and IP. So it does help. And I'm comfortable with it and I do enjoy it. So, yeah, it's come full circle, actually. I, I, you know, that was probably 20 years ago I did a, a PhD in, in chemistry. But then I, th I think when you do... Well, your degree is, is a very formative period anyway, but when you're doing something like a PhD, it's very deep and, like, all, I guess at the time, all-encompassing. So even though it's, you know, 20 years ago, I'd imagine it, it doesn't leave you very quickly. You're right. You're right. Yeah, I mean, I haven't thought about it, but I'm probably still publishing papers in the last few years and I haven't even been involved or written anything. 20 years is the time span for patents. And I did get a patent from my research university, but... I think that's now now coming to an end, and unfortunately, I didn't make any uh, commercial benefit from it yet. So I think, I think that opportunity is gone now. Well, you never know what what might be around the corner in the future. Well, yeah, maybe last few weeks. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> the other part with that as well is that you have a very very broad responsibility within GM. But one of the the topics that stood out and that that many like previous guests have spoken about the importance of and and seems to be increasingly important is business partnering. And one of the, again, I've, I've been a business partner of a type in some parts of my career. 
And what I've found is that that's most helpful is when you really understand where you're the person you're partnering with, regardless of them individually, but also their department, their context. You understand that. And so again, going back to that that background in science is that if you're trying to business partner as a finance leader and your team is, is business partnering with people who are trying to like drive the business forward, maybe who are scientists or looking at the commercialization of that science. Again, with that background that you've got, it must lend you and, and the team so much more credibility because you know some of what they're trying to tackle. I think you're right. It probably breaks down sort of the, the barriers in understanding and you can go and really understand the business because really that's what we need to do, understand the business and understand the technical finance and how we can help, how we can deliver insight. So I think, I think that is right. You don't want to come with a suite of things and say, here's everything finance can offer. What do you want? You want to really sort of say, well, where do you want to get to? What's your strategy? How can we support you? What do you need to know? And that's how you can give the business units that, that advantage, really. So, yeah, totally, totally with you on that. And then going back to that, that sense of purpose, you were compelled by GM's sense of purpose and, and what they're trying to do. And you were saying as well that the pandemic and COVID has has made us all question that. And you can see so many changes in behaviour that are the result of people questioning the way that they were living beforehand, whether it's the housing boom in the UK or the or the move to hybrid working globally. There, there's lots of them. I was wondering whether that same change in purpose has maybe adjusted your leadership style and the way that you lead your teams and the transformations that you're often undertaking, because those often have at their core a sense of purpose as well. Has the recent pandemic and what we've been going, th- what we've gone through, affected that at all? You're right. I'm leading on uh, finance transformation. I, I only joined Johnson Matthews six, seven months ago, but leading transformation, leading change, is hard at the best of times. I think leading it remotely takes more emotional investment. So you have to build trust, you have to build credibility, and you have to transform without even meeting the majority of your stakeholders. So that is personally quite challenging. But we've got good plans in place, a vision we can convey with conviction, and we can then link that to everything we do to a wider purpose. So that creates a case for change and the belief. So we're making great progress, I'd say. You know, looking back over the weeks, over the months, I can see it, others can see it. But what I'm still learning is the importance of personal connection, trust, and being flexible. So you talked about hybrid working. I think those three things will persist as we move to hybrid working. So personal connection, you know, we've all been deprived of the usual human interactions, that the basis for shared knowledge in the workplace. And there's a need to connect more regularly and check in and ask how people are feeling. That's a very simple question, isn't it? How, how are you feeling? But there's probably a multitude of answers to that. I've seen Paolo Gallo, who I follow quite closely. He has um, a wheel to show emotions and possible emotions. There's probably a hundred emotions. So there's probably a hundred different answers to that question. So, you know, it's a really important question to understand how your team's feeling and how you respond to that context. And, you know, trust as well. We need to, as leaders, default to a position of trust. Our teams are working remotely but they're also trying to be productive while juggling demands of being a good parent, lots of emotional challenges and just trying to do their best. So as leaders, we need to have empathy for that and also be flexible. I think we've gone through this and we're probably the most flexible we've been in, in recent years. And and that that's having a, a great impact on pushing change through and being more accommodating. And I think that's also opened up to 
us all learning from experience as well and learning from this experience, which will hopefully stay with us and persist. It's fascinating to hear that because that idea of, of trust and getting used to the uh, distributed workforce and perhaps a lack of interaction, I think it's forced, it sounds as if, of course, you and, and many other leaders to rethink the way that they're doing things. And as you said, like the, the idea of like asking how you're feeling, it sounds as if you might be asking that now more than you might have done in the past. Have there been occasions where you've asked that of the team and maybe they got a response back that said, you know, it was clear that people were feeling stressed or, or finding it difficult and then you've had to adjust, the, 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 you know, your plan of what you were approaching? I have asked that question and I have had team members pouring out to me that they are stressed and you are sensitive to that and you have to support it, have to counsel. And I think, you know, there's a real risk of, even though people are working at home, there's a bit risk of burnout as well, actually, because people are always on, you know, they feel they have to do more to show more because they're not in the office. And I, I think, you know, people then just potentially overwork. There was times where I found myself doing it, you know, just never found myself switching the laptop off. You know, it's just on and I dip into it, have dinner, dip into it. So you lose the boundaries, don't you? You lose that. It's not like you commute to the office, you've got a clear boundary, you commute home. It just merges into one. So I, I have to tell the teams, you know, create boundaries, be very careful about meetings, don't have back-to-back -back meetings, create space, because it becomes very exhausting. And you want to create some space to have the capacity to think and innovate as well. You just can't be busy all the time. It's just manic activity is really counterproductive as well. I couldn't agree more is that those days where you've got, you know, half an hour or hour meetings back to back is that it leaves very little time to, to in some cases, actually work productively on on materials, on, on presentations, on actual content. And then on top of that is that, I don't know about you, but the quality of my interaction and attentiveness can, can wane over time. So the person who's unfortunate enough to be at the tail end of that gets the, the worst deal. That's right. And I think even just asking how you feel at the start of the meeting, creates space as well so even if you don't get someone pouring their heart out it creates a space to content shift between meetings and you know then you can have a more productive meeting rather than sort of going straight into the business you, you can talk to the team and you know get them to relax and I think you need to create that space at the start of every meeting. You mentioned that your belief is that hybrid work will will continue and, and all the signs are from almost every company will be more hybrid than it was before. It's just a question of how much, depending on the company. With that in mind, were, were there certain things that, that you and the team have tested as like a way of working, particularly within finance as well, because it can be, to your point, like very a very intense environment. There's always tough deadlines. There's a very high threshold in terms of like accuracy, of course, as well, because of the, the consequences of, of getting anything wrong. So were there any particular techniques or ways of working that you and the team employed that you can see continuing on as hybrid working, you know, means part of how you operate so i think i think we've all sort of tested it to its limits really and i think by doing that and experience it on quite a prolonged basis you do want to naturally revert back to have some contact and i think it's really hard to motivate yourself and you know just think about meetings again you know i, I do sort of spend some time with the team saying actually it's quite hard to motivate ourselves and you know if we're in the office and we sort of begin to picture ourselves in the office so 
I think it is a very unnatural environment for us to to operate like this. And I think everyone has had to deal with it and perfect ways of coping with it and dealing with it. But you're right, we're going to all have to revert to some different way of working. I think the hybrid model will be optimal for everyone. I guess, yeah, it's just the balance, you know, how how do we arbitrate what the right balance is? I don't know. I think that it'll adjust depending on the leader, the team, the culture. And that that culture is actually another piece that that is clear that, that is a passion of yours and, and you've invested a huge amount of time in is, is the, the development of learning cultures and that, that placing the, the culture at the at the heart of any transformation. Can you perhaps talk a little bit about your approach to to building culture and again how you've approached that with GM over the past six months or so? You've touched on it. You know, we're we've all had to be adaptive leaders over the last year or so. And we've all had to constantly learn and adapt. Plus, you know, the world is getting more uncertain, more complex. It's always in motion. And you've got multiple trends here, multiple forces, which is producing multidimensional uncertainty. So there's a lot going on. At the same time, Linda Grattan from Linda Business School is telling us that we're all going to live longer. She's written about 100-year life. And you've then got the rate of change of technology. And that, that then challenges us with the question, how do we stay relevant? So I think, you know, there's a lot of things that we need to deal with. But you're right, it all comes down to how do you get through things? How do you deal with uncertainty? How do you deal with complexity? And I think you get through things by getting through things. You know, you learn your way through. And this organizational adaption occurs through experimentation and just being flexible. So leadership... I think it would be an easy and safe undertaking if you only had to face problems you knew the answer to and you knew the solutions to. So it's not these technical problems, it's the adaptive challenges. So the pandemic was a recent example that everyone has experienced. For those challenges, you need new discoveries, you need learning, you need innovation. So I think, you know, yesterday the world was complicated and you needed technical expertise to get through things. And I think today the world is complex and you you need that constant learning adaption sense making you know where interdisciplinary is the norm really so as leaders you know it's a fantasy now to think that everything can be predicted and planned because it can't and we need to be more agile more human actually so to be agile everyone talks about agile and to be agile at an organizational level, it's, it's actually rapid learning and, and rapid decision-making cycles. And you often have to take decisions with imperfect information. So you're always taking risk. And leaders, in, in creating uh, a learning environment, I think it's very important for leaders to create that safe environment, a holding environment. So you have to be very... I, th- I think it's a shift away from this heroic, idyllic picture of leadership to actually leadership's messy it's imperfect you know that's the reality of it so being very real showing your vulnerability showing your emotions understanding your emotions creates that psychological circumstance for your team to show the same and feel safe and if they feel safe so i think it's psychological safety people talk about if your employees and your team feel safe, they're more willing to change, learn and grow, be more adaptive, creative and innovative. So I think one thing that we need to think about is, is how do we create this psychological safety? And it's Amy Edmondson who's written about this. And 
create a climate of trust and openness. But often, though, that that's come down to the leaders demonstrating humility and uh, vulnerability, as I said. I also read a book by Adam Grant recently, I think, Think Again. And he talks about better practices rather than best practice. So everyone thinks, oh, we need best practice. But actually, that's very deterministic. And it shows you've reached an end point where actually you should always be getting better and better. So that's a learning. And Satya Nadella as well, CEO of Microsoft, he did a phenomenal job creating a learning culture at Microsoft. And he's written a book called Hit Refresh. So he added, I don't know how many billions to the market cap of Microsoft, the CEO. But he said, you know, a CEO, the C in CEO was for culture. And he talked about moving from know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. So you're not changing the talent, you're changing the culture. So moving from a place of complacency when no one talked about sub-optimality to actually learning and being vulnerable and saying, we've made mistakes, how do we learn from this, how do we improve? So I think, yeah, there's a lot we can take with us. And it's just, I think, being safe and, and that adaptation and growth also makes us more resilient as well. So I think that's another thing we need going forward in the, in the uncertainty. There's some fascinating concepts in there. I love the idea of uh, better practice rather than best practice. If I had a penny, a euro, a dollar for every time that someone said, oh, what's the best practice in this area? Or, you know, what are the benchmarks? Then I would be very wealthy. Do you're completely right is that what that often does is it neglects. Well, it assumes that also that the problem is exactly the same for whoever your peer set is as it is for you. And if you're just following best practice, at best you're copying and I know that there's like the old analogy of a uh, uh, good artist copy, great artist steal. But I, I think maybe even that that quote it alludes to the idea that that you can take ideas from anywhere, but all you should take is the idea, not just what they do, and then like and then just implement it in your context because it it takes away the thought and the the idea of thinking from first principles. I agree totally. I think that's right. So everything you do has to be context specific and sympathetic to the the context you're looking at so you're right you can't take a best practice in another organization and transfer it and i think you know there is a real cultural thread here and you know if it is that easy to copy everyone will be doing it and you'd be in a equilibrium again so you know how, how do people get advantage it is doing something different to their specific context and getting the best out of that context and do you uh, that I subscribe to the same belief where we're possible, of course, again, it depends on the deadlines and, and the context and so on. But if we're possible, you should think about problems from first principles. So rather than say, OK, there's a problem. Who else has done it? Let's bring it in. You act, try and break it down to the, the component parts and then think creatively about what the solution could be. I think you have to. I mean, obviously, you can learn from other organizations, but it's very unlikely they would have experienced the same problem. So I think we deal a lot these days with wicked problems where, you know, the high stake problems don't know the answer. And you could spend a lot of time trying to research the answer, but you'd still be wrong. So there's no point spending six months trying to look at elsewhere. I think you do have to look inside, look widely as well for any learnings, but really it's so context specific, you know, you, you have to develop the answer yourself. And what I wonder as well is that this idea of being 
like having psychological safety and ta- tapping into humility, you'll have heard from previous guests, the theme of humility has come up time and time again, often in, in the context of business partnering, but but more broadly in leadership, it seems to be something that's that's very prevalent, I think for all leaders, but particularly finance leaders. But one thing that, that this touches into is that perhaps like one hypothesis is that what prevents people from feeling safe and maybe and from trying to be creative and and seeking to learn is a fear of failure and i think that i can understand why that might exist in a very to your point like in a place where there are high stakes problems and i think finance maybe more than any department or a part of an organization they're facing high stakes problems where it's like existential the, the need for accuracy and truth is like so so high so how do you strike that balance between needing accuracy and accountability on one hand then trying to discourage a fear of failure and therefore encourage learning and growth on the other I suppose yeah but I'm just trying to think about my experience of vulnerability and I, I've done it to with my team and I've experienced it with my team and it's actually you know at Vodafone, we were facing the um, lockdown and thinking, well, how do we get through this? How do we close remotely? This was high stakes. You know, we're public reporting, annual report. We've never done this before. We're a SOX environment. How do we close our books remotely to time? Because we don't want to delay. We want to get audited. And so we accelerated something we've been looking at over the last year, which was um, last mile touchless digital reporting and we developed that so quickly and collaborated across the designers it finance tested everything we got a really good product where we could go straight from our consolidation system to the pdf published annual report that you give to shareholders without any human intervention so i suppose yeah we had a problem and we talked about it and thought, let's accelerate this, get this to work, put all our effort into this, because if this doesn't work, we will not close on time. And I think that's how we got there. You know, it's a bit of vulnerability, but obviously trying to get accuracy as well. And I think I think that's what came to my mind when you talked about all that. So I didn't know the answer. Yeah, I didn't know the answer, but, you know, we we achieved a lot, actually, in a very short space of time. And I think, you know, it's made it so much easier for the team going forward as well. And I think that you're not alone in in recognizing that that teams ended up performing incredibly under the circumstances particularly of the the first lockdown in that period last you know march april may where there was so much uncertainty i was reading a, a recent report that mckinsey had run and they were researching and, and they were looking at i think it was ceos and they were evaluating how the the pandemic had affected speed of performance and execution and of course everyone being remote and one of the observations that the majority of ceos made is that their speed of execution their speed of delivery had actually gone up dramatically and that the circumstances had created this sense of purpose it created a focus that perhaps wasn't there before and it sounds as if you had gone through a similar thing at Vodafone the thing that I've been reflecting on is is that something that was a one-off because of the the nature of the circumstances or are there aspects of what what was going on there within Vodafone and your team and then you know other places that we can learn from and then and then take into the future you know in a post-pandemic world so I think I think it is the it's what's what's thrust upon you, isn't it? It's what I was saying about getting through things by getting through things because we have to. But it's a good question. Why why did this not happen earlier? Why has it not happened before? But I think there's a real 
fear of change. And um, even if things aren't optimal, people just think, I'm not going to change things because there's a security, a sort of psychological security in having a routine and knowing what works and how things work. So I think you do need a bit of a shock or, you know, a jolt to change or else you create that change. And um, change isn't easy, is it? So there is that sort of leave it as it is if, it, if there's no need to change it. But there's a lot of an emotional um, underpinnings to this as well. You know, I think change is really hard. So unless it's forced upon you, it does take a lot of effort to make changes. And I guess looking back, if there was one thing that none of us, no one in the world could do was resist that change because it was happening. And so it was more a question of how we dealt with it than actually then resisting it and trying to you know, make sure or imagine that it wouldn't happen. Exactly. So it's the adaptation, isn't it? You have to adapt to it. And um, how do you learn your way through things? Yeah, exactly. It's a fascinating concept that you that you touch on the idea of like so you want to create say within a team psychological safety but you don't want to have them become comfortable in psychological security of that can then impede um, change and, and transformation. It's a very so it, it feels like a very delicate balance. No doubt, no doubt it is. Yeah, I mean you, you're right. You you want them to feel safe to take experiments and to take leaps, not not to be just standing still. That's that's right. Touching actually on the change and how to how to bring about change, another topic that I wanted to cover with you is the the idea of you know innovation within finance and and also the way that that technology is underpinning that and the the digitization of finance. And I wanted to understand your perspective because again, I'm sure as well over this past year and, and prior to that, you've been experimenting with all manner of different technologies and you're now working for one of the leading technology companies, certainly in the UK and, and a really prominent one in the world. So how do you view that the digitization of finance and, the, and what's happening there and how that can actually help bring innovation? So digitization in finance is happening and you know, all finance is becoming digital. And I think there's a preoccupation now to think, well, how do we apply AI? How do we apply blockchain? How do we make finance smarter and more digital? And then you've always got to come back and say, well, for what purpose? Why do we need to do that? So I think when I talk about innovation, what I mean is the commercialization of ideas through digitization. So there has to be a reason to do it. And it has to make the customer experience better. And when I say customer, it could be external customer, or it could be internal customers and the business's finance supports. But there's been a number of things we've looked at. I mentioned the Vodafone example, which is very linked to finance and financial reporting. When I was at Costa Coffee, we looked at investment cases for digital and you know how do we make that customer experience better? So order to pay, which now sounds very familiar, you know, how, ordering from your phone app and picking up in store. But, you know, that took a lot of investment technology to link it all up. Or the loyalty applications, new till systems, so we could do conversational ordering. And then we also had some aspirational personalization of experience. So um, Costa's multi-channel business, it had um, retail, it had self-service coffee. It's now got ready to drink and at home. So the self-service, you, you see a vending machine and you think, oh, I just push a bus and get coffee. But they were actually very technologically advanced machines. They were all, they had cameras, speakers, they had a user, um, graphic user interface, touchscreen. They were all networked to the internet. So the 
Internet of Things devices that link physical and virtual. So we began to think, well, how, how do we get a more personalization of experience, perhaps linked to loyalty cards? And then we're thinking perhaps they could offer personalized suggestions of drinks or could they even play someone's favorite music through Spotify when they approach the machine? So there's a lot of things you can do, but I think, I think you know, rather than sort of trying to self-serve finance and saying, you know, look, guys, how can we apply blockchain to, to finance? It's more saying, well, actually, what, what's the business need? What, how do we make our experience better for the customers? And then how can digital help us? So I think there's different ways of looking at it. I mean, Vodafone as well, I think I did read they were looking at blockchain to agree and settle roaming charges between different network organizations. So there is an application for that, but I don't know how easy that was to do. And also read about Vodafone strategically partnering with Google recently and creating cloud data and saying they've got 700 use cases for, for that. So I'll watch that with interest. But how much of those 700 use cases will take the business forward is, is what I'm interested in. That's a very interesting point because blockchain is perhaps the most famous example from the past few years. It's the most incredible technology that is still searching for use cases left, right and centre. And I'm sure there are many, many to come. You, you've mentioned a few, but at the moment in many places, it's a technology in search of a of a use case rather than uh, people approaching it as a problem to be solved. And then the blockchain can provide the solution to that. I'm sure if there are any um, blockchain and crypto experts out there, they'll they'll be sending angry emails to me. But at the same time, I, I think that it's, it's really interesting. You, to your point, you need to start with the, either the customer experience or the problem and work your way back. So you're right. If you start with the technology, you could think of use cases, but how practical are they and how, how will they take you forward with adequate investment? And I, I don't know. If, I mean, I was reading about the Bitcoin. Obviously, it's lost of 20, 30 percent over the last few weeks. And that, that's just from comments from, I can't remember the Tesla CEO's name now. Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon Musk, you know, saying it uses an insane amount of energy. So, you know, that's the other side of the coin. You know, what's the payoff to solve something if it's... Um, going to use a lot of energy and that's the the world of unintended consequences it may be yeah the other point into you mentioned about the digital transformation of finance is happening and you like obviously prior to the roles you've mentioned you were in an advisory role before switching into industry and as part of that advisory role of course you worked across industry with with various different cfos and, and finance teams and one topic that's come up time and time again is the idea of the of the role of the CFO evolving and whether it is or not, most people subscribe to the idea that it is and moving away from less of the, the, the operational leader and more to the operational and strategic advisor and starting to guide the strategy and direction of the company. Is that something that, that you have observed from your time in advisory through to your more recent roles? Or have you actually seen, you know, the, the role remain relatively similar to, to what you first experienced? No, I definitely think it's changing. You're right. I, I was advising a lot of different companies, you know, with quite high frequency. So you, you get, it's a very privileged role, I think, in consulting, because you go to the high levels of the organization, you can see things. But you also talk to a lot of leaders and, you know, the they're under a lot of stress. So I think you're right. The CFO role is an executive level role, isn't it? So on its own, it's only second to the CEO. So it holds the trust of the board and the investors. So it's a very, very high profile role in itself. But 
I think you're right. Over the last two decades, you've seen it a perpetual loading in that role. So it's gone from core control, compliance, stakeholder reporting, leading the function, to actually probably subsuming some of the functions of the COO, strategic thinking, risk management, and moving more then towards partnering and advising key management. So it's a really wide role, loaded up over decades now. And it's integrating as well. So it's not just financial, it's integrating across the organization. So I see it as a shift to rather than chief financial officer, chiefly financial officer, because it's not only finance now. It's a bit of a misnomer to say it's chief finance officer. And so we've seen that shift from, let's say, very senior FD to CFO, which is an exec role, to CFO plus, which is all the strategic operations and risk, to chiefly. So I think, yeah, what's next? I think it's another CFO. It's a connected financial officer. Some brilliant words of wisdom there. Well, welcome. Thank you very much. No, thanks, Ross. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with someone you know. CFO Playbook is brought to you by Soldo, the leading smart company card and spend management platform. Learn more at soldo.com.